There's that line that catches us, Lord. But even if you don't, it's right there that we live out the challenging intersection of our faith. Trusting you, putting our confidence in you, knowing you are with us, and yet so much of life is so hard. Lord, use this psalm to equip us and to encourage us as we navigate those challenging waters. We pray with expectancy and with hearts that are open to your instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, beloved Covenant family. I miss you all. Greetings to our online friends. We're so glad to have you with us in worship. Students, all of you who have headed back or are heading back to school this week, next week, I know this is a, such a strange time of expectancy and consternation and uncertainty. I've been praying for you as the Lord has been bringing you to mind. And kiddos, I love you and I miss seeing your faces. Well, I want to talk to you all about today about finger framing. Have you ever heard of that? Finger framing is something that artists use, photographers or filmmakers or painters, to try to bring clarity and focus to what they're looking at. Let me show you how it works. So first of all, imagine that you are an artist and you are trying somehow to capture everything that is in front of you right now. So here's what I want you to try to do. Try to look at everything that is in front of you right now all at the same time. It's kind of challenging, isn't it? I mean, what do you look at and what do you not look at? So this is where finger framing comes in and here's how you do it. So start off, make two finger guns. Your thumb, your first finger. Now turn one of your palms towards you and the other one away from you. And then bring the tips of your thumbs and fingers together and make a rectangle. And then what you do is you close one eye and you look through that rectangle and then all of a sudden, it gives a frame that you are looking through and that brings focus to what's in front of you. And that's how finger framing is a helpful thing. It's interesting, the word perspective actually means looking through something. So a finger frame gives us something to look through. It narrows our focus so that all of our seeing becomes clear. So the Psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 90, is like a finger frame to put around life. I mean, think about everything that is in front of us right now. What do you look at? What do you not look at? How do you look away from it all? How do you look at it all? I mean, what do you look at? The ever-changing fall school calendar that is uncertain from day to day, the presidential election polls, the Dow Jones, in, Dow Jones Index, do you look at the Tippecanoe County COVID count? Or do you, do you look at that constant stream of disconnected and random alarming facts about things going on all around the world that's streaming across the bottom of the screen constantly? This psalm has a wonderfully clarifying quality to it. It helps us focus on the important and to put into perspective everything else. You heard me read it at the start of the service, and I know it sounds pretty glum, but this psalm actually 
helps us to see with clarity. And as it gives clarity, that leads us more deeply into a life of freedom and of gratitude and of expectancy. So the psalm begins by talking about the idea of home. So what does home mean to you? As you think about that word, what kind of connections? How would you define home? What kind of connections does that make in your mind? You might just write that down or turn to the person who's sitting next to you and just talk just for a moment. Just share your idea. What does home mean? Here are some of the things that I thought of. Maybe one of these matches what came to your mind. It's the place that matters most to you. It's the place that defines you. It's the place where you are safe and you are accepted. It's the place where you are known and you are loved. It's the place where you belong. It's the place where you can find true rest. So what is that place? What is home for us as human beings? Well, right away in verse 1, the psalm throws at us an unfamiliar perspective. It's the expected one. It's what we expect the Bible to say. But it's an unfamiliar one to us as human beings. It doesn't seem to fit our experience. Where is home for us as human beings? Well, it's right here, isn't it? This place, this planet we live on, this is home, right? Wrong, says this psalm. God is our home. Verses 1 and 2, Lord, you have been our home, our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The word you is emphasized in both of these verses. It says, Lord, you have been our home, and from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It implies that there's a choice or a decision of sorts that is in front of us as human beings. Evidently, there is a spiritual real estate market and there are several potential homes for us to choose from. So the psalm says, not this one, not that one, but you, God, you are our home. So stop here just for a moment and just think about what that means. Let that sink into you. How stunning is that? To think that God gives himself to us as our home. Some of my favorite verses in scripture are found in Moses' words to Asher in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. He says, the eternal God is your home, your dwelling place, the same word. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Two different ways of saying the same amazing thing. We are Held by God. Always. Not when or if or as long as or because. But always. He is our home. In the movie Les Mis, Cosette says, I grew up in my father's love. His love was my home. We can say the same thing about the love of God. In what ways have you experienced God as your home? I'll come back to that in a bit. But first, let's follow the the unfolding thought of this psalm as it goes along. 
So right away after that declaration that God is our home and not anything else, the psalm suddenly pivots into a new idea. And we find this as we go into the middle two sections of this psalm. The next two sections of the psalm explain why this world isn't and can't be our home. First, in verses 3 through 6, it raises the issue of mortality and it reminds us that there is nothing permanent in this, about life in this world. And then in verses 7 through 11, it raises the issue of morality and it reminds us that there is nothing perfect about life in this world. So let's look at each of these two sections. First, nothing about life in this world is permanent. Verses 3 through 6. Earthly life for every single one of us has a beginning and an end. And for all of us, the time between those is short. Listen to these verses. And, and one of you uh, raised a question about the interesting connection of the eternality of God and this sort of time-bound nature of human life. And one of the things that you were kind of at the cusp of recognizing here is this fascinating way with all these time references in this psalm that God is eternal and yet he walks with us in time and he works in time as our life unfolds. And you see that coming through in these verses, three through six. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new. By evening it is dry and withered. You may remember that after the fall and as a consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, God says to Adam, dust you are and to dust you will return. Dust, dust or death touches everything. Either someday you are going to attend my memorial service or I'm going to attend yours. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.2, death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. This world looks like our home. But life here isn't lasting. Nothing here is permanent. I had the chance to visit with Bill Dalton recently, and he shared the story of how early in his career, he was sent to Australia for two years to, start, to, to establish, to build, and to get up and running a plant for Alcoa. Starting with an empty grass field, he got the thing built and up and running. Well, 50 years later, he went back to Australia and he thought he would go and see that plant and see what it looked like now. He went back to the place and there was nothing there, only an empty grass field. It looked just the way it had when he started. Nothing in this world is permanent. We want to make it home, but it can't bear the weight of that expectation. It's a nice place to visit, but it isn't home. As Psalm 39 says, I am your guest, God, a traveler passing through. Well, then in verse 7, the psalmist turns in the next section to the second reason that this world can't be our home. Morality. Nothing about the life in this world is perfect. Starting with us. The Bible teaches us that God created each one of us as human beings to live our lives for God in keeping with his standards and in line with his purposes. But we failed. Each of us individually, all of us collectively as an entire human race, we failed to do that. We rebelled against God 
and his purposes for us. And we lived instead for ourselves. All of us have done this. And that's sin. And in the divine economy, sin has consequences. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all because all sinned. The psalm reminds us that we live under judgment as broken people in a broken world. So picking up in verse 7 and going through verse 11 now. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass away and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. This world is groaning under the weight of our sin and God's judgment upon it. Upon it. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all of creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present moment. This world can't be our home because it's broken and we are broken right along with it. So before the fall, creation perfectly reflected the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of its creator. But now the light of its truth has been clouded and the mirror of its beauty has been broken and the well of its goodness has been tainted. At its best, this fallen world will reflect the truth and beauty and goodness of God only imperfectly. This week, I dashed out for a couple of hour time out in creation to spend time with God in prayer. And as I got out of the car, I was struck immediately by the beauty of it all. These huge stands of oaks and maples and pines and hemlock and cypress. But that wasn't all that struck me. This is not an exaggeration. Within five seconds, I was bitten on my hand by a horsefly. Within 30 seconds, a gnat flew straight into my eye, causing me to completely miss the deer that was bounding, crashing through the woods just yards in front of me. Within five minutes, I had collected five spider webs and a spider on my face as I was walking through the woods. For the next two hours, as I walked along the overgrown path, I was trying to, to kind of wiggle my way between the, the mess of stinging nettles in the wetlands and rose briars in the uplands and poison ivy pretty much everywhere in between. At the end of two hours, I just gave up and I went home. That time in creation was a great parable-like reminder of life here on earth. Beautiful it is. Home it is not. So this world can't qualify as our home. 
Because nothing in this world is permanent and nothing in this world is perfect. Now, at about this point, this psalm could feel pretty dark and heavy. But this is exactly where the the point at which the psalm really starts to pour out its gifts upon us. The psalmist calls us to take our finger frame at this point and to look at life through the frame of this psalm. When we do that, it gives us fresh perspective in three really important ways. First of all, it gives us perspective on the real state of things, which can open up our souls to search for answers somewhere beyond this world. It is so easy, you know this, it is so easy for us to busy ourselves with the day-to-day and not to stop and think about the wider realities of life. That the world is broken and that we are in deep spiritual need and that someday, maybe someday soon, we're all going to die. When I see clearly for the first time that the, the luxury liner on which I'm cruising has the name Titanic, Titanic painted on the stern, well, that motivates me maybe for the first time to start to look out at the horizon to see if there might be some help somewhere. And when we begin to look for evidence that God from outside might be coming to us on a rescue mission, we start to find evidence of it all over the place. And it is centered in the person of Jesus who says outright to us that he is not from this world, that he has come to us from outside of this world, and he has come to seek us and to save us. His birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection answer the problems of both our mortality and our morality. The reason that John 3.16 is such a popular verse to mention is because it captures in just one sentence the difference that Jesus makes in the face of our sin and our death. It describes the rescue that he offers and it tells us the way that we can participate in that rescue all at the same time. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. When we put our confidence in Jesus, we are sprung free from the curse of a fleeting life under the heavy weight of God's judgment. We are given the the certainty of forgiveness and of new life and the sure hope of being made new and of living with God for eternity. And that lets us live out our days here on earth, not in fear and in despair, but in freedom and expectancy. It's what what gives over the deed of the house and hands us the key to the front door that opens onto God becoming our home. Well, second, this psalm gives us perspective on where to put our hope and to seek our rest. Think about what happens when we get confused about where our true home really is. I still remember when Sharon and I moved back from England at the end of my studies there, when Brandon was just a a newborn. We were staying in Cincinnati for a while before we headed out to Colorado Springs where I began my ministry. And part of that time in Cincinnati, we stayed in a house that didn't have any air conditioning. This was midsummer. 
And literally, this is not an exaggeration, the entire time that we stayed at that house, both the temperature and the humidity were in the 90s. So we spent the entire time lying flat on the bed underneath the only fan in the house, sweating and wondering what in the world we were doing there. We were so miserable. Imagine what would have happened if we had in our mind that that was the place that we were stuck for the rest of our lives. Think of what happens to us. Think of the frustration and the disappointment and the resentment that could begin to well up in us when we start getting confused and start thinking that this world is our home. We require that our jobs satisfy us, that our relationships fulfill us, that circumstances that please us, that people love us, that comfort follows us wherever we go, that doctors cure us, the psalmist says in verse 1, God, you are our home. He calls us to take our finger frame and to, to pivot around and to center our perspective on God and not on this world or anything in it. To stop trying to find something in this world that will be the home for our hearts. And to look to him as the one who accepts us and who knows us and loves us, to look to him as the one who holds us and defines us and keeps us safe, to look to him as the one who is the place of our belonging and of our peace and of our true rest, to look to him as the one who is our home. Teresa of Avila said, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. I love that. Well, third, this psalm gives us perspective on how to live out our days in this flawed and fleeting world of ours. So now as we come to the final section of the psalm, this is where the psalm takes a really unexpected turn. Verses 12 to 17. Okay, so God is our home and this world isn't. Well then, how should we live out our days here on earth? Well, what you would expect the psalm would say next is something like this. Just fix your eyes on God. Forget about the world. Forget about everything in this world. It's a lost cause anyways. It's all going to burn up. Just, just retreat from the world. Hold your breath and wait. Eventually, God's going to pluck you out of it and bring you into his presence, and then your real life can get started. But that's just the opposite of what we find in the final verses of this psalm. Instead, in this last section, the psalm offers us six prayers that we can pray along with the psalmist. And you might think about praying one of these prayers each day, since we're talking about living out these psalms kind of in the remainder of our week. You might think about living out these psalms uh, or praying out these, these prayers over the days to come because they lead us not in rejecting life in this world, but in entering into a rich and meaningful life as we live it out here on this planet. So here's our Monday prayer. Grant wisdom, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. One of you asked the question, what does that mean to number our days? It's interesting. This is a word that means, uh, it comes from the world of stewardship. So the chief steward in the house was entrusted with all of the master's property. And to number the master's possessions was to take stock of them, to be aware of what you had, what your resources actually were. And that's what we're being invited into here. 
teach us to, to take stock of our days, to be aware of what, what sort of time we have that, in order that we might live with wisdom. God, grant me the wisdom to live each day in the way that best fulfills your purposes in life through me. Our days are limited. Each one of them comes to us as a gift and as a trust from God's hand. For years, this has been my waking prayer. Lord, thanks for the gift of another day of life. How would you have me live it for you? Each of our days comes with a God-attached purpose. Every single one of them, no matter how bleak or empty or despairing they feel, every single day we have on earth comes filled with the purposes of God. This prayer is a way of looking for the tag that is tied onto the day and seeing what it says. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Our Tuesday prayer, grant comfort, verse 13. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. God, console us, grant us comfort and the grace to endure while we wait for all things to be put right. Having compassion means being moved by another person's plight. This, the word picture behind this word that's translated have compassion actually literally means breathing deeply. Whether it's a sharp gasp when we hear about someone's difficult situation or a deep sigh as we enter into that with them. Not long after Sharon and I got married, I began in my head to have a nickname for her, which was one of admiration. I would think of her as Sharon Aw Henderson, because every time she would encounter a need or a concern in someone else, that was how she responded, exactly as this verb describes, to, to breathe out this sigh of empathy and understanding and entering in that, that moved her to take a step into that person's pain. It's exactly what this prayer invites. God, have compassion on your servants. Our Wednesday prayer is grant satisfaction. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. God, grant us the deep inner satisfaction that can only be found in your love for us. The imagery is coming to the table hungry and thirsty and coming away from it fully satisfied. There's nothing on this earth that is capable of quenching our deepest hunger or thirst like that. Only in God and in his love for us can our deepest longing ever be met. As Augustine says, you created us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The unfailing love that's mentioned here is that unique covenant commitment that God has towards his people, that, that faithful and unfailing always sort of quality that marks the commitment of God towards his people no matter what. Lord, let your love be the thing that sets our soul to rest and sets our feet to dancing. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Here's our Thursday prayer. Verse 15, grant gladness. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. God, God grant gladness in alongside the sorrows. The psalm does not deny that much of life in a fallen world under God's judgment will necessarily be woven with pain and loss and grief. It isn't asking or expecting that that pain will disappear. It is simply asking that we would be given the gift of reasons to be glad along the way and eyes to see those reasons. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Our Friday prayer, grant glimpses, verse 16. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. God, grant glimpses of your glory amid the brokenness of this world. This world is not void of you. You are still with us, near us, good to us. Give each new generation glimpses with each new day of your presence and your work in this world. Even in its darkness, let your presence shine like the sparkle and splendor of a jewel. On a gray overcast morning uh, earlier this week, while I was down on the platform in my ravine having my prayer time at the start of the day, the sunlight suddenly somehow burst through and just lit up just for a moment a tree on the other side of the ravine. And it sparked this poem about that mysterious way that God in his transcendence can suddenly break with his presence into this world. The sun, a ball so far, so far and pale and small, and yet golden glows and gloried whatever here is graced by, embraced by its light. God, show us how you are at work in this world. Give us eyes to see you. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. And finally, our Saturday prayer, grant beauty. May the beauty of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, let your beauty shine in all that we do to serve you here on earth. May the beauty of the Lord our God rest on us. Lord, let the people you place around us see you in us. Let them experience your love through us. Let the way that we love be part of the way that you reveal yourself and your heart in this world. Let what we do, inconsequential though it may seem to us, let what we do make an eternal difference. We may not see the difference that it makes, Lord, but let us love and serve in the confidence that in your hands, with your touch, it will make a difference. May the beauty of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90 invites us to change the entire way of our seeing. To stop trying to, to find something here in this realm that will satisfy the eternal longings of our soul in this temporal world. And it's said to, to shift our frame of reference completely and to make God the focus of our days and then to live them out with purpose and with peace. So what is the place that matters most to you? What is the place that defines you? What is the place where you are safe and accepted? What is the place where you know you belong? What is the place where you find true rest? God, you are our home.